Welcome to Blockchain Recorded, the podcast for the tech curious, where we talk about anything and everything related to the exponentially evolving crypto, blockchain, and Web 3.0 space. Our mission is simple, to share knowledge, facilitate discourse, and help evolve education in blockchain fundamentals, decentralization solutions, and relevant use cases for today's digital economy. We at Blockchain Recorded are not registered investment advisors and do not deal with financial or trading token elements, nor offer any licensed financial services. The content of this podcast is for informational and educational purposes only, while the opinions of all parties involved are their own. I'm your host, Nina Tserar, and now let's talk blockchain. Before I introduce our guest today, I'd like to remind our listeners to follow us on Twitter, where we pre-stream each episode on Twitter Spaces the day before publishing on all major podcast platforms. For the platform list, visit our website, blockchainrecorded.com. And today we have with us Adam Reitz. Adam is the co-founder and CEO of Ledin. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. A global company regulated in the Cayman Islands that focuses on building financial products to help people save in Bitcoin and digital assets. Prior to co-founding Ledin, Adam spent 10 years at Dream Asset Management, where he developed, built, and financed a $1.5 billion portfolio of renewable power projects. Adam, welcome to Blockchain Recorded. Thanks so much, Nina. Great to be here. It's uh, really great to have you here, um, as today we're taking a little twist in the topic and talking about lending and crypto lending and maybe uh, demystifying some of the reservation that people have given everything that's been going on in the crypto space over the last couple of years. Let's just go straight through your background. I'm actually pretty intrigued. I saw, uh, if I'm not mistaken, that you uh, started out in banking as myself, and uh, you have a, so you have a banking analyst background, went through renewable energy infrastructure, tech, real estate. I see this little combination going on. What brought you to crypto or well, actually Web3? Yeah, of course. Happy to get into that. So I actually went to school for mechanical engineering. And then mm-hmm. uh, I liked the social aspect of business. So I got into and I was I was fortunate that I had family members that were both engineers and uh, in, in different business that I could kind of foresee what the different careers would be lo- would, would be like. So uh, I studied mechanical engineering in Canada, and then um, uh, also uh, completed a, a business school in Canada. And then I wanted to find something that, that complemented both. And so I, I found a mm-hmm. early stage startup that was developing renewable power projects in Canada, actually taking a European model and um, uh, dealing with uh, the digestion of, of different uh, uh, types of organic materials to convert it into uh, power. And so that was an interesting uh, startup to work for for a couple of years. And then after that, I went into uh, the other side where I was directly investing in the type of projects that uh, that company would have been developing. And what was neat about the uh, experience in power is that I used to joke that uh, I was kind of in the business of, of converting kilowatt hours into dollars. And what I mean by that is uh, kind of bridging conversations. And so uh, what you typically have is you have people that are super technical, and then you have people that are uh, really good at finance, uh, but sometimes kind of bridging uh, that communication gap is challenging. And so really how I got into Bitcoin was was realizing there was a somewhat one in the same in that, in that uh, anything that's really um, misunderstood or new, mm-hmm. uh, there's there's often opportunity there uh, because those that can spend the time to understand it and um, you know think through what the opportunity is, uh, it, it's exactly that. It's an opportunity for them. 
So I was fortunate to go to school with a friend of mine that Mm -hmm. is now my co-founder in the business. And uh, he grew up in Venezuela and I grew up in Canada. And really what was interesting about that was there couldn't be any farther differences in how we looked at government Mm -hmm. and how we looked at money. Mm -hmm. And really um, what got me into Bitcoin was was him and realizing that uh, money is not the same for everybody Mm -hmm. and that uh, I was fortunate to grow up in a place that had very strong rule of law, uh, very strong property rights, which is, I think, those in the space commonly believe that that's really the, the, the fundamental building block for building a, a, an economy. Mm-hmm. And um, that it was pretty interesting to think about uh, how to do more with Bitcoin. And so what how my power experience kind of bridged that was, was twofold. So in the power industry, uh, everything's very local. So if you want to finance a power project in Canada, US, or, or you know uh, different parts of Europe, it's it's fairly straightforward. Again, very strong rule of law, uh, contract laws, everything, because you're uh, getting asked to invest a lot of capital up front and then uh, on the premise that you'll get a long stream of cash flows. And obviously that's harder to get your head around if you don't believe in the, in the government or rule of law in, in different places in other economies. What was interesting about Bitcoin is it's the same everywhere. And so a Venezuelan Bitcoin was exactly the same as a Canadian Bitcoin. And therefore, it was um, you know more interesting to look at as a financial asset because it got rid of all the complexities uh, that typically exist with with financing an asset. So uh, it was really, you know, again, uh, commonly understood that the first truly non-jurisdictional asset in that, uh, you know, it's it's equal to everybody uh, and the same everywhere. Uh, so that made financing it pretty cool. And then the second part of it was at the time, mm. uh, energy storage was a really big deal uh, for what I was doing in renewable energy. The idea that, you know, it was, it was great that the wind blew sometimes and the sun shines, you know, most of the time, but it wasn't always when you needed power. Right. And so the idea that you could store uh, electrons was a big deal. And there was an interesting relationship between Bitcoin mining in that you could also uh, take some electricity and effectively store it for later because you're converting it to dollars in Bitcoin uh, or Bitcoin. And and then you can convert that back to to dollars when you need it. Uh, So it was those kind of revelations that uh, really was the kind of start of of Latin and what we were uh, working to build out. So long answer, but hopefully that gives you some context as to what got us excited about it. No, totally. Um, I actually uh, find it fascinating fascinating that yourself being from Canada, so sort of the saving slash investment portfolio environment, fairly safe in terms of financial stability versus Venezuela, where there's, you know, chaos going on and people are struggling with dealing with double digit inflation, which is uh, not just like a one time occurrence, it's just uh, sort of never ending. I'm, I'm fascinated by that story. And if I'm If I'm not mistaken, because I actually did take a listen to um, a few of your podcasts and where your colleague Mauricio was speaking, were you also involved in the in the mining as well? Or did I did I I don't wasn't sure if I that's right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So we we first got into mining uh, prior to creating the the financial services business and Mm -hmm. uh, mining. Uh, obviously was the closest uh, thing to what I was doing in the energy sector in that, you know, uh, Bitcoin mining projects have high upfront cost and then again, a stream of cash flows. Mm -hmm. So we thought it was an interesting place to start. I as well wanted to force myself to learn. So I thought, you know, the best way was to put my money where my mouth was and, uh, you know, invest in some mining 
equipment and, and really understand and break it down of, of how to do it. And then the financing piece was the the really the tertiary piece that, that pushed that together. So uh, as we got into building out a Bitcoin mine, uh, we realized that the opportunity to finance it was far and few between in that uh, as in Canada, uh, it was difficult to get banking. Mm-hmm. Uh, the banks, you know, even still today are, are very reserved when it comes to dealing with the, the asset class. And uh, let alone, you know, get a loan, that was just an insane thought. So really it was, okay, if we're experiencing this problem, then uh, other people likely are too. And so we uh, put together all the different knowledge. Really, I I was kind of wearing the hat of what would someone need to get comfortable uh, lending? And Mauricio was wearing the hat of what would need someone need to get comfortable with borrowing, uh, because that's the interesting thing about mm-hmm. uh, you know a, a loan product is it really does have two customers. You have to keep it you know the both sides of the of the capital balanced. And you know we we developed um, uh, Canada's first Bitcoin back loan uh, in, in 2018, and so that was uh, pretty exciting. And then worked through some different aspects of where else it would be valuable. Um, you mentioned that Canada is not so uh, keen on on the sort of if I understood correctly the the Bitcoin as an asset class in general. How did you navigate through that during that time? Or actually, and, and now, I mean, I, I know now in terms of the background, you're, uh, you're located or actually you're set in the Cayman Islands, but how did you navigate it at that time? Yeah. So the, the banking sector is uh, obviously like in most other countries, highly regulated. But in Canada, I think it comes with a lot of pride that Canada didn't have the 2008 blowups that the, that the U.S. did. Mm, uh, okay. And the banking sector is very, very different than, uh, again, apologies for always using Canada-U.S. analogies, but that's uh, obviously no, it's fine. Where, where I grew up. And, uh, <laughs> it is what it is. <laughs> uh, uh, that's, uh, you know, obviously the, the markets that I understand well. Right. Uh, but, you know, in the U.S. where you have, you know, thousands of different regional banks and you can essentially, you know, start um, not overnight but you know there's a bit more entrepreneurship and, and different ways to, to get started mm-hmm. uh, Canada has you know a big five banks and uh, it's essentially an old galopoly uh, across the country and everybody sets the rates the same and that the common joke is you choose your bank based on your favorite color because they're all the same <laughs> and uh, you know that they, they kind of move all the same when one moves slightly ahead the others kind of kind of rush to cover mm-hmm. but the benefit of that is it's stable uh, and it's um, secure uh, the downside of that is innovation and uh, also uh, an impetus for change because the banks are quite profitable. Uh, there's a very great good business, um, you know, where you're taking in deposits, charging banking fees for operating standard accounts, and then uh, running different types of um, um, uh, financings on traditional assets. So obviously, real estate being the, the major one uh, in Canada, given the demand for uh, immigration and, and new housing here. So I think just when it comes to new stuff, I, I think it really com- comes down to incentives. Is you know why change. Uh, and then at the individual level, there's career risk. So I, I think that that's how <laughs> I've come to terms with it after being you know, frustrated for, for five years of, of trying to you know, uh, get banking. And mm-hmm. um, so, so that's you know, that, the kind of aspect of it. The other thing is Canada had a blow up early on uh, in the digital asset space with an exchange called Quadriga CX. Right. So there was uh, you know, a bit of an embarrassment that the Canadians lost about 400 million there. I think there was mm-hmm. some recoveries afterwards, but at least 
least that was the headline number Some, uh, back, yeah, you know, right. yeah, in, in, in 2018. So mm-hmm. that really caused an impetus for the different uh, regulators to, to jump on it. So where it's at today is the Canadian regulators have done a, a good job of regulating pure play exchanges. So, you know, if you just want to buy and sell Bitcoin and uh, you are offering what is a custodial platform. So um, to break it down, if, if you uh, offer uh, uh, Bitcoin or other digital assets um, and you broker them, uh, you, you need to be registered with um, FinTrack, which is the uh, anti-money laundering regulation. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you don't need to be a securities regulator. Uh, you don't need to be regulated under the securities framework. But if you offer uh, more like traditional exchanges work where, you know, if you're a, a Kraken or Coinbase and you mm-hmm. uh, want to you know have clients keep their assets on the exchange, mm-hmm. uh, then because there's the c- concern that you know, you are uh, entrusting your assets uh, at a later date and expect to, to be able to return them, then you have to go through a, a whole bunch of uh, additional uh, hoops to uh, be able to do that. So that that's now, um, um, I think, again, they did a good job of coming up with a framework for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what they haven't done yet is they haven't come up with a framework for uh, different types of digital asset businesses and, and lending uh, being the uh, the one that obviously Ledin is focused on. So uh, we're in we're in good dialogue with the Canadian regulators, uh, but it was um, it was clear that things weren't uh, uh, that there wasn't a, a framework for us uh, to fit in uh, today uh, in Canada. So mm. uh, you know we we had to move we had to look at other jurisdictions that uh, could could set had you know existing frameworks that allowed us to operate and offer the products that we do. I see. Hence the move to Cayman Islands. Yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Let's let's set the stage for lending in general and what it means. Uh, just the industry. If you could maybe quickly explain how do traditional versus crypto loans work in terms of yeah, just just let's let's just start with that. That would be good. Yeah. Uh, so most crypto lending is what the. Uh, TradFi industry would refer to as asset-based lending. And so mm-hmm. uh, there is starting to be some early use cases of credit-based lending where you're doing, you know, looking at the borrower's ability to repay first on other types of cash flows. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the type of lending that Ledin is doing is looking at uh, whether you have an asset that we can collateralize it against. Uh, that's the, the uh, product that we offer at, at the retail and, and high net worth uh, individual side. Uh, so again, in, in traditional sense, you have uh, Kind of all different types of lending so you would have uh, asset-based lending I, i'd say the one that we're most akin to would be uh how the banks finance uh equities mm-hmm. so if you want to purchase uh, meta or you know what used to be called facebook stock mm-hmm. uh, and you uh, want to uh, you know buy more of it uh, the banks will offer you uh, different types of financing in, in your brokerage account uh, so that would be uh, kind of at least the similar market structure with how uh, bitcoin-backed lending works today uh, I'd say that the difference and slight tweak is our loans are intended for a bit longer term use, use and therefore we set different uh, loan to values uh, for that. Uh, that would be one thing. I think the things that are the same is uh, at least it, for uh, um, centralized uh, lenders like Ledin, uh, we still have to follow uh, anti-money laundering regulations. So just like uh, in the, the banking model, uh, you have to know your client, you have to collect all that diff- different types of information. Right. But I think the, the benefit and, and difference of what we're doing is is speed. 
So if you think about how long it takes a bank to even approve a mortgage, mm-hmm. uh, you're looking at likely a minimum a month, I think. I mean, that's that's been my experience. Uh, and that's, again, because there's all these nuances of trying to understand the asset that uh, isn't, it, it can be a little bit unique and different uh, versus, again, in digital assets, because the asset is, is uniform and the same and because you know you have it through just you know physical delivery of the asset, uh, the speed is uh, significantly improved. Like we can we can approve loans. Uh, you know, our standard delivery is, is one business day, but we've done things in an hour mm. uh, after somebody has applied and we have all the information. So uh, that's what makes it really exciting, I think, uh, that that aspect of it. Um, the other, I think, aspect is, is fairness that I, I really like and that, again, you're providing the same rates to, mm-hmm. uh, you know, different clients globally because the asset's the, the same. So uh, that's an interesting uh, aspect of it as well. You actually just answered uh, one of my questions, which, which was in terms of drawbacks that traditional bank lending do does right so speed is one of them is there any anything else that you see as like a main drawback of traditional bank lending versus what you guys are doing now yeah i would say the amount of administration and uh you know paperwork involved Mm. you know obviously i i think when you have been doing something for a hundred years, naturally it gets a bit clunky. Right. And we have the uh, benefit of, of starting from scratch and really figuring out how to keep only what we need and eliminate what we don't. And so we've been really able to, to streamline the the loan uh, approval process. So it literally takes two minutes to apply for mm-hmm. a, a Bitcoin back loan on Ledin. And, you know, uh, that that's been something that I think has been re- refreshing as well. Mm-hmm. I, I sort of want to get into into um, I can't help but ask you how you guys managed to survive uh, last year's domino effect fiasco with everything that was going on or and even before with with Terra Luna. So, you know, with the BlockFi Celsius FTX um, fiasco in terms of the, the lending platforms, um, how did you guys survive that? What did you do differently For sure. um, than other crypto lending platforms? Yeah, I'll first maybe just qu- quickly frame up the different types of products and then the different types of customers uh, or clients so that mm-hmm. that's understood. So sure. uh, So we have really the uh, Ledin um, uh, has two types of, of products. So we have our Bitcoin back loan where we offer mm-hmm. two types of loan products, sorry, and a few others. But on the lending side, we have our Bitcoin back loan where we're lending dollars and that's uh, two to one secured by, by Bitcoin. So if you want to borrow a thousand dollars USD, you're going to deposit uh, $2,000 worth of Bitcoin. And then there's ample margin there to protect from ups and down swings. And uh, to the extent the Bitcoin price goes lower, we ask you know clients to top up. And um, in the event that uh, the, the, the loan is not repaid, there's ample collateral uh, to, to uh, manage that. On the other side, uh, we have products where clients can earn yield on um, stable coins or on Bitcoin today. Uh, we're going to be adding uh, a select amount of other assets uh, shortly, but that's the um, asset that we support today mm-hmm. and on the dollar side that that's pretty straightforward again so most of the the stable coins or usd is actually used to fund our own um, retail and high net worth loan book uh, today on the bitcoin side we uh, have to figure out a way to offer yield on bitcoin and so the way you you offer yield on bitcoin
Bitcoin is uh, there is a uh, market uh, symmetry where uh, different types of trading firms and market makers want to borrow Bitcoin uh, to do exactly that market make. So this is, you know, in a very, very plain vanilla example, Bitcoin's trading at a different price on Kraken than it is on Coinbase. So they're using the asset to sell on one, buy on the other, and effectively, you know, as the, the phrase is, make that market uh, and, and close that um, price gap. And so to facilitate this, they, they can trade with their own inventory, but obviously their trading becomes a lot more profitable if they do the same thing with a higher volume of assets. Mm-hmm. So in that type of activity, uh, you, you, you can't collateralize the loan other than uh, looking at, of course, the, so you have to look at the, the credit of the institutional market maker, because right. if you're collateralizing it, they're not actually getting any leverage on what they're doing. And so they're not increasing any profitability. So there's not really a, uh, you know, an opportunity for them to uh, borrow that asset. And so it's really, really important to look at the credit analysis of uh, that type of borrower and understand the type of trading they're doing, making sure they're not doing, uh, you know, any um, types of major directional trading or other things like that. So mm-hmm. um, that's an aspect that um, we've had to look at and, and really understood, uh, understand well. So if I can break it down now, kind of looking at what happened in the other lending space. So mm-hmm. if I take a company like Celsius, uh, Celsius supported an enormous amount of assets. I believe at one point I counted 50 different types of mm-hmm. uh, crypto assets they were, that they were supporting and they were offering yield on all of them. So when you offer yield on them, you obviously have to figure out a way to pay that yield. And so there's what asset that you're supporting. Uh, and then there's what type of investment you're putting in. And then the third is for what type of tenure. And so if you're paying, a, offering to pay yield on an asset that doesn't have a strong market demand for, then you have to figure out a way to, to obviously get another asset that does. And first off, the reason that there would be the incentive to do this is in 2021, there was incredible froth for assets under management or assets on platform, meaning that if a uh, crypto lending company could show that they had uh, 15 billion of assets on their platform, there was essentially a three to one multiple, meaning that if they were if they had 15 uh, billion of assets, uh, they were worth five billion. Mm. And then if they're worth five billion, you know, obviously everybody is is happier with these crazy valuations because the the team is happier, their options are going up, the the founders are of course happier because they may be even uh, selling a part of their equity to to new investors, and uh, everybody's you know happy in an up only market when things are going wild. So. Um, that that's, I guess, framing the incentive of why they would want to pay yield on all these different types of assets to bring them in. But again, bringing it back to the, the challenge of it is that if you're uh, bringing in assets under under on, on your platform that aren't profitable, uh, then you create problems and you and you add complexity uh, to what, what's going on in, in the underlying operations. Mm. And so what was happening was these companies were doing exactly that. And then they were at times then putting in directional risk. So if I can't pay, if there's no market demand for, let's say, uh, you know, a top 10 altcoin, uh, but I, I can offer to pay yield on it and get it in, then I've satisfied one, but I haven't satisfied, obviously, how I'm going to pay that yield. So what they would do is they would post that asset uh, in perhaps a different type of decentralized protocol. Mm-hmm. Then they would bore another asset, likely a stable coin, uh, that they could lend out. And then they're partially solving the problem, but they're adding in a different risk. 
So now they've solved the yield piece, but now they've added in directional risk. Right. Because again, in an up only market, if, if everything's you know increasing, it's okay. Mm-hmm. But if the market starts to come down, then they have to pull those stable coins back, repay the loan, so they can pull back the asset that is their clients and, and return it in an effective manner. Uh, so the, the, the straw that broke the camel's back was, of course, Terra Luna. And when Terra Luna happened, uh, that caused a big compression in all the uh, decentralized protocol tokens, and then therefore it put pressure on this exact system. And I mentioned the other, the secondary piece was tenure. So if I put up, a, a, you know, let's say a Link Coin, I'm just using that as example only. There's no um, sure, sure, yeah. So and then I lent, I borrowed stables against it and lent that out, and then I had those stables locked up. Now. My, my loan value, my LTV is going up, but I can't pull that asset back. So that piece in itself you know, adds a whole bunch of challenges to do that and ended up causing some you know, liquidations and different aspects of it. The other type is just putting, taking uh, different types of client assets and putting them in illiquid strategies. Uh, so that was done. But to answer your original question, uh, why did this not happen to Ledin? So Ledin, Ledin did a few things correct, which was really important from a risk management perspective. One, on the asset side, we didn't mismatch assets. So we, if we were offering to pay a yield on Bitcoin, we only ever mm-hmm. earned that yield in Bitcoin. So we didn't swap it, like I just explained. The secondary one was we didn't lock up assets. So if we mm-hmm. are offering open term deposits and uh, you want to be able to withdraw, you better be sure that you can withdraw that asset tomorrow and it's not locked up in some type of tenured contract. Uh, And then the third is we didn't lend uh, more than we could afford to lose in that we thought that if anything that you're doing, there's kind of a classic saying is uh, Mm -hmm. uh, at times you don't know what you don't know. And if you don't know what you don't know, at, at when all those fails, you better be certain that uh, if, if something happens that you have an, a, a kind of a full on uh, breaker that protects all of that. And so what we did was we uh, had a uh, lending constraint that we didn't lend more than a net equity to any one particular borrower. Uh, and that's what protected us from the, the final straw that uh, broke the camel's back, which was FTX and Alameda. So when, when that uh, company went down, uh, we, our group of companies went down, we uh, did experience uh, a lending loss, but we were able to, p- to protect client assets because we were able to buy back those assets with our own equity mm. uh, and protect that from happening. Um, what about lending to lenders? Um, wasn't one of the problems that, I mean, the, the companies that went down, obviously they were scratching each other's backs, but w- what's your protocol on this? I mean, do you also, in terms of, because this is another one of my questions, sort of, I guess, what's your mantra in terms of lending out? Do you lend out to lenders? Is that what sort of, uh, I guess, protected you as well? Yeah, um, so today we do not. Uh, so historically, we did have a relationship with, with Genesis. Okay. And uh, that was in place really uh, when we were a early stage company. And we were looking to uh, offer yield on uh, stable coins at first, mm-hmm. and then, uh, you know, Bitcoin later. And um, what we wanted to do was always make sure we understood what was happening uh, with the assets. And so I would say, there's not a hard and fast rule on that, but you better be sure you understand how they're utilizing the assets and what's uh, in that. And so when we closed our seed round in the beginning of 2021, uh, we had a 
mantra to make sure that we mm-hmm. de-risked uh, that relationship. One from a, you know just an economic and a piece of it. So we wanted to make sure we had more control over our own economics in the business. Uh, and two was you know de-risking from a you know just overall uh, risk management standpoint on on uh, that relationship as well. So when when it came to the uh, time where Genesis uh, did have issues, we actually didn't have any substantial uh, assets with Genesis, so we had fully, fully diversified away uh, from that relationship. Uh, and so today we don't have any um, loans out to lenders. Uh, and I'd say like, I, I don't think mm-hmm. it's an area that we will because it's kind of like what we're doing. And so we'd effectively be paying like margin twice and giving economics away. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, but, you know, I, I think, you know, if and when it comes down to just, again, proper credit due diligence, making sure you know what they're doing mm-hmm. uh, and um, protecting things that way. So what would you say, I mean, you did uh, allude to a couple of things that you did right, but what would you say your key takeaways were after this this whole, well, we would call it the CFI domino drop or affirmations, right? So you, you affirmed that you did in terms of what you just explained that you did those things, you had them in check. What about like the, the less is more approach that you said that some of the other ones had, I don't know, 50 different coins or 50 different assets and, you know, you, you didn't go that route? Is that something that affirmed your path? Yeah, I would say that I think in 2021, uh, what was happening on the valuation side and this whole multiple of just bringing in assets at all costs to get it to get a multiple. Yeah, that was just crazy. Yeah. And, yeah. and I think, you know, fortunately, uh, we saw that as being crazy. And we said, mm. we can play this game. But I think, you know, people people are smart, uh, but people are greedy. Right. And so I think if you think that eventually things will make sense, they, they do. And unfortunately, sometimes it has to have a math massive whiplash the other way <laughs> right. uh, for it to, to get back to reality, which was exactly what happened. Mm-hmm. But uh, we, we took a view that we wanted to build something for the long term. I, I did something else for, for 12 years. I've been doing this for five. Uh, I'd like to do it for a, a long term going forward. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think, you know, uh, you know, just two things is, you know, no shortcuts is, is, is a good mantra, right? So uh, if it feels a bit easier, um, you know, things are mo- most times the right thing to do is, is a bit harder and requires more patience. Uh, but um, if you're doing something and it, and it feels better, that's probably the, the better thing to be doing. And I think just when it comes to our setup, um, one of the things that we love uh, in how we think about the business is the best restaurants have the smallest menu. Yep. <laughs> so focus on quality. Yep. Yep. Uh, you know, it's less like the, is more. Uh, yeah, le- less is more. So when you have that setup, uh, it's like you want to have a really curated list and look, all the best companies that uh, everyone's proud of do this, right? Like if you think again, pulling back from a um, lending side, but just on a consumer level, like when you walk into an Apple store and you buy something, you know, you bought like good, great, or the best, like there's no stuff that's not like they don't sell anything that isn't high quality. And that's the the same um, mantra that we want to be at Latin. Plus, it's just a I think it just goes to, gets down to common sense when there's too much choice within like a one stop shop. It's when it gets too confusing. It's just it's always a red flag. I feel like when, when you when you it is when yeah you, when you go somewhere and you're like oh well they have this and they have this and they have this and it's like you you leave more confused. It's almost like on purpose. So yeah, less is more. Yeah, and also when you think that it's um, when it's too good to be true, it it usually is. <laughs> For sure. I feel like we always get back to the to the sort of the the, the basics. Well, diving more into Leaden, um, you just touched upon what you guys offer in terms of so centralized lending and a savings platform. 
and like you said, mainly for Bitcoin and uh, if I'm not mistaken, so USDC holders as far as stablecoin. That's right. But also you have a mortgage product option. And then um, I just saw that you have some newly released products. Yeah. Feel free. I mean, can you walk us through your, your just a little bit more in depth in terms of your core products and um, what you guys are doing today? Of course. Yeah. In terms of your new n- new stuff. So yeah, to refresh. So on the, on the lending side, we have our Bitcoin back loan, which is putting up uh, Bitcoin as collateral, boring dollars. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have a a similar product, but the use case is a little different, uh, which is our B2X product. So that product allows you to use the loan to buy more Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the underwriting is the same. Uh, so you're still getting, you know, the loan is two to one at the end of the day, mm-hmm. uh, but you start with a Bitcoin and we essentially provide the uh, dollars so you can buy another one or, you know, obviously in different increments. Uh, the yield products I touched on, so you can earn yield on USDC or in Bitcoin today at Ledin. And then the mortgage sorry, product. Sorry, sorry, to, yeah. sorry to cut you off. Yeah. And is is that rate? Um, is it still around eight percent for, for for Bitcoin? Uh, it's actually nine percent for USDC. It's only one percent today on on Bitcoin. And the reason for mm-hmm. the big uh, dislocation is is supply demand. So mm-hmm. uh, we actually released something called the Open Book Report, which shows our utilization of the different assets within these products and all of the. Uh, USDC that we have available is being used to fund our Bitcoin back loan book today. So there's ample demand. We're seeing lots of clients that want to borrow dollars against their Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. On the Bitcoin lending side, the market is quieter. So obviously we just had a little bit of turbulence last week, (laughs) but (laughs) up until that, up until that point, uh, things were range bound, right? We were range bound at like 28 to 30 K for, for months. And so Essentially, the way the market structure works is you need retail demand to drive volatility in the market. And then when there's volatility in the market, uh, institutional traders um, have an opportunity to, to frankly make money. And when institutional traders are making money and uh, actively trading, then they have a demand to borrow assets. And so that's the that's the kind of three step piece that we need uh, to get the Bitcoin rates up. Okay. And 9% for USDC. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, the, the reason for that is... That's pretty high. Yeah. Our, our, yeah. our, our lending rates are, are 10.9. Mm. And so we earn a net interest rate spread of about uh, 2% there. So that's how we're, we're paying that um, 9%. Who's, who is like, uh, I'm just thinking, who's, who would be, a, or do you even have a typical profile of a person um, or borrower who chooses the 10 plus whatever you just said percent? Because that's that's super high. What's what's the mentality behind that? Yeah, Are people just willing to do that just for. Well, I mean, go go for it. I mean, just explain because it, I'm just baffled that you have there's a lot of interest in that respect. Yeah, I think so. A lot of our clients are very uh, Bitcoin or other uh, other types of uh, digital assets uh, wealthy, okay. right? And so okay. it, you know, the traditional banking system only allows them to borrow credit on traditional assets like real estate mm-hmm. or um, fiat-based income. So even a mortgage in the traditional banking system does not really lend against even the home. Mm-hmm. Uh, they want to make sure that you have a job and hopefully that's a job where you're employed, not self-employed, because mm-hmm. uh, that's further risk. So it really is not addressing the needs of you know many types of uh, participants in the market and especially those that are very interested in, in digital assets. So, yeah. And then I think for us, I'd love to see the rates be lower. Our rates are a reflection of the cost of dollars. And so Mm -hmm. right now, I think we were seeing some progress 
to uh, lower the cost of dollars in the space. Mm -hmm. But then when uh, FTX happened, uh, there was obviously a a retrenching of different types of participants in the market uh, and that further um, boosts that. And then you add on the fact that, uh, you know, just traditional rates are are much higher. Mm -hmm. Um, So, I mean, mortgage rates have gone from variable of two to variable of almost seven. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so, so it's not substantially higher than uh, where things would be in the in the TradFi space today. Mm-hmm. Okay, so sorry I cut you off earlier. Um, yeah, in terms of your core products. Um, yeah. So the the Bitcoin mortgage was the the next. Uh, yes. The one that so the, so that was the uh, that actually came out of watching and learning from how our clients were using their Bitcoin back loans, and so okay. this product does get a little bit more local, which uh, obviously isn't ideal for for Bitcoin, but something that we're working on broadening out uh, because we uh, take security of the uh, real estate that they're buying. And the reason that is beneficial is then we can improve the margin call terms of how a Bitcoin back loan works. So uh, let's let's assume it's you know larger amounts because you're gonna use this to buy real estate. So if you put up $2 million of Bitcoin, we can lend you a million dollars. So what was happening is the client would do that and then they would go buy a million dollar property. Well, the real estate property is a long-term investment. Hopefully, them holding Bitcoin is as well. Uh, but if that's substantially all the Bitcoin that they have, they, they may be subject to margin calls or liquidation mm-hmm. uh, if that Bitcoin price decreases. And what we what we find is especially large holders uh, have a very secure way of holding uh, their Bitcoin. And so they may not have it mm-hmm. sitting in a hot wallet on their phone uh, when they need to top up. They probably have a different security protocol where it's in one or multiple cold wallets that they need uh, to spend time gaining access to uh, and send it in a you know calm controlled environment and so what we did was if we took security of if we decided that we could take security of the real estate as well we could improve the margin call terms so uh, the way that works is if we took security of the million dollar home now we have the bitcoin and the home mm-hmm. and so a we can release back some collateral because we don't need three million dollars of, of collateral we only need two and then secondly we extended the margin call terms so that you you have two weeks uh, versus a um, uh, what, what could be um, a uh, an instant uh, liquidation if if things are uh, decreasing below uh, cer- certain thresholds. So that's the kind of main uh, difference w- with the Bitcoin mortgage is we take it take advantage of the fact that you are buying something that we're happy to collateralize as well. Mm-hmm. So this is the mortgage product option. Yeah, and then you have some newly released products. Or a product. Yeah, we also have a uh, dual cryptocurrency note, which uh, allows you to take a view on the price of Bitcoin in the future. And uh, typically this is like 30, 60 or 90 days. And you can participate in two ways. So if you own Bitcoin and you're comfortable selling it at a higher price than it is today, you can get paid uh, to wait and to guarantee that that sale. Hmm. If you own stable coins or dollars and you want to buy Bitcoin at a lower price than it is today, mm-hmm. you can also get paid to wait. Mm-hmm. So in, in a real example, let's say, uh, you know, we're um, it's Bitcoin's at 25K mm-hmm. and you decide that you're comfortable selling at 30K one month from now. So you may get paid a 10% annualized yield for agreeing to that that piece. And so in 30 days from now, if Bitcoin's at 30K, you will get converted, you'll get $30,000, you'll still get paid your yield. 
as well. Uh, if it's not, you'll simply get your your um, Bitcoin back and still get paid the yield. So the yield is is paid no matter what, and then you have a kind of a different outcome based on the price uh, trigger. So based on what happens in the market, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. and so like I think when you think about the dollar one, mm-hmm. uh, a lot of people talk about dollar cost averaging in into Bitcoin, right? They want to buy a little bit every week or month, right? And so this is kind of an interesting way to effectively do that, but we call it DCNs. Mm-hmm. So you can um, you know uh, use this product to earn yield and then uh, maybe get uh, triggered into buying some Bitcoin at a price that you're happy with. Mm, okay. Interesting. Yeah. So, and then, okay. Sorry, yeah, keep going. Sorry, yeah, yeah. Go, go ahead. No, I was going to say, and then we do have a pretty standard trade product as well, just to allow you to swap between the different assets on the platform. Okay. So just straight, straightforward. Yeah. So my question is in terms of centralized versus decentralized lending, lead-in products are custodial, right? So is that still the case in terms of I don't hold the keys to that. You guys do. Ledin does. That that is correct. Yeah. So there's there's a few different uh, pieces of this. So I think I've definitely come to view this as a bit more of a spectrum on uh, full decentralization versus full centralization. Mm-hmm. And you know I, I think decentralized lenders uh, got a lot of credit post FTX on kind of surviving it and not having issues, which which I think was deserved. But right. I, I also just wanted yeah. to comment it, it. It's it's a different type, right? So mm-hmm. when we have uh, collateralized Bitcoin loans, uh, we didn't have any losses on on that you know product either, right? So you're taking two to one Bitcoin uh, if it's set up and it's uh, programmed correctly, and you have uh, the proper liquidity all built into it. Uh, there's there's no issues, and so that that's re- it's more of a function of the type of lending than how it's done. Is is like I, I think the nuance there uh, that 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 should be corrected. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing that you can provide when you do centralize some aspects of it is is client service. And so uh, I think this is an asset class that we hope more and more people will come into. And uh, there's some challenges of, of trying to set up and use a fully decentralized wallet infrastructure today mm-hmm. uh, that um, we try to break down and make uh, a bit easier uh, when you're dealing with lead. And so we have, we, we focused on the things that we think we uh, can be good at, which is very strong client support, uh, a lot of education going into the product uh, and making sure people understand uh, exactly what they're dealing with and how it works. Uh, and I think that that's, you know, I think there's probably going to be some some better tools and things like that 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 help, um, helps with with DeFi protocols but i think today it's still quite there's probably a little bit more more anxiety on coming into those products uh than there would be uh with um uh, some products that are a little bit more user-friendly to use so you're looking into basically maintaining the custodial part you're not looking into going non-custodial at some point so i i think the the non-custodial piece comes down to uh, the way we look at it on the lending side is what are we doing with the Bitcoin collateral? Mm-hmm. And so today, uh, we it's, it's actually most of our dollars today are coming from our uh, stablecoin uh, savings account, which allows you to hmm. earn that 9%. Interesting. Okay. Uh, and so we don't have to post that Bitcoin anywhere else uh, to get those dollars. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what we do have is we have the flexibility so that if we don't have enough clients that uh, want to effectively lend us dollars uh, through the savings account, that we can access more dollars uh, from the institutional market uh, by posting Bitcoin as, as collateral. So effectively, you know, if you again kind of think about the the tradfi sector, how uh, you know mortgages are you know kind of packaged and 
you can access to different capital through doing that. That's that's in a way uh, a similar market structure that you can get further access to capital by doing that. So I, I think there's a lot of things that we want to do, uh, but we have to make sure that the mm-hmm. uh, capital and the structure allows for it. And so I, I think in the future, what you can uh, potentially see from Ladin is different optionality. In that if you want to effectively lock your Bitcoin and uh, know exactly where it is, perhaps on chain, although that does add a a bit more complexity to it, uh, then you can have that option and there'll be a different rate for that. Uh, But again, we want to make sure that the the current market structure can support that. And um, I can't I can't like again, it's um, difficult to not go too much into the weeds uh but uh sure sure yeah there's um you know there's uh, there's a lot of things that we want to do uh but then there's the things that we can do today with the the, the market structure part of it. yeah that that's in place so um yeah just just to say like we're, we're trying to balance a lot of different things and it goes back to kind of my original point is like every loan has two customers and so if you don't have the, the customer that that wants to lend the dollars in that way you can't offer the product on, on the the other side of it so sure sure Fair enough. What's your what's your main? I'm just curious. What's your main client base? Um, is it more individual or institutional, or is it a fairly equal mix of both? Yeah. So I like to think that to say that every product has two types of customers. Right. Again, on the the borrowing and lending side. Yeah. So we we really have a fifty fifty mix of both. So hmm. if you're depositing Bitcoin, uh, most of that uh, client base is retail or high net worth, so individuals. And then, but the Bitcoin is used to supply. Uh, the demand of different institutions. And so we have a lot of institutional clients. And so we even have our business segregated in that way. We have a institutional group that manage all the, all, all of those relationships. And then we have our, our product and uh, marketing teams that manage all the uh, individual relationships on, on the other side. Is the inst- uh, and then Yeah, sorry, go ahead. And then I was just going to say from a geographical point of view, so we, we started uh, in Canada. And so we built up a decent client base here uh-huh. because of Mauricio's background and experience. We decided to effectively leap over the U S and go directly into Latin America next. Mm-hmm. And so we focused on product education and growing in, in that region of the world. Uh, and then along the way, we uh, picked up some, uh, a client base in uh, the U S and Europe as well, just because of uh, frankly organics and different clients uh, looking for, for different alternatives. So uh, we're effectively like, you know, one-third Canada, one-third Latin America, you know, one-third Europe today. Hmm. And we're uh, working on uh, awareness um, more broadly in the world. So we're uh, spending a lot of time thinking about how to broaden out uh, lead in, into the MENA region, uh, mm-hmm. into Asia, uh, and making sure that we can um, offer our products um, into clients in those regions of the world too. And in terms of geographics, is your institutional client base, is that, does that hold when you say one third, one third, one third, does that go for just the individuals or where are most of your institutional investors from? Yeah, that's a good point. So I, I was speaking to individuals, uh, but yeah. the institutional side is actually very uh, evenly distributed amongst the globe. So oh, interesting. Some, of our, some of our institutional partners are set up in you know Singapore, 
Hong Kong. Uh, you know, we've got you know a decent amount in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Uh, in in Europe as well. So mm-hmm. uh, yeah, it's it's pretty global. Um, and when you said when you say Latin America, the region, are, does that encompass like most of the countries already, or would you say it's mostly like the Venezuela and the surrounding neighbors? Yeah, it, <laughs> I imagine Venezuela is the main <laughs> one of the main ones. Yeah, it's interesting actually. We have more clients in Colombia today uh, than we have in Venezuela, oh. and that's because we we found. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, a really good um, crypto educator to work with uh, in the region early on. Um, so okay. Papa Bitcoins Cryptos is his, his channel. I recommend uh, Spanish speakers uh, check him out. He's been excellent. Okay. Uh, and um, so and then other just marketing we, we, we got started in early on there. But yeah, I think, you know, Argentina is obviously a major market right now with everything going on there with mm-hmm. 100% inflation. Yep. Uh, and Brazil is, is, is quite a different market. Um, we've had some success in Brazil as well. Uh, the platform is available in, in Portuguese. Uh, but, you know, there is obviously very uh, different and, and local cultural nuances you have to take into consideration in uh, different regions. But I would say it's pretty distributed uh, amongst all the different LATAM countries, Mexico as well, of course. Okay. I know I'm pretty surprised about the one-third Euro part. So it's, uh, it's, it's very interesting. How, um, I mean, you must, how big is your team now to, to cover all this? How many people do you have yeah. in total? Are they spread out? Are you more localized? Like, I mean, I know you said it's, it's you started out in Canada, but do you have a more of like a remote team going on? Yeah, today our team is uh, 40 people. And so we have a, our client success team would be more remote to cover different time zones. And uh, we have most of the uh, management team. Uh, so I'm now in Cayman and uh, mm-hmm. um, a lot of our other management team is spending time in, in the Cayman Islands as well. Mm-hmm. And then uh, we've got some uh, team in uh, Canada too. Okay. So 40, that's uh, that's pretty decent size. How many devs do you have? Or do you have, uh, do you have a... Yeah. Okay. Uh, about half of our team is technical. So that's, um, you know, a, a piece that we're obviously... I think, mm-hmm. yeah, I'll, um, obviously being an engineer myself, I have a bias for bringing on as many engineers as we can. And yeah, but we obviously, sure. what's interesting about this business is really all the different facets and, and teams are very important, right? So uh, we have to have, you know, strong risk management. We've got to have uh, strong, uh, you know, even, even like, not even, but, um, you know, our, our financing accounting teams are very important. And uh, yeah, just, you know, I can go through all the different departments, but it's pretty important to be well-rounded. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, no. Yeah, yeah. J- just, just to have a general uh, good idea, because also my that leads to it to what you just alluded to in terms of risk management. I would assume that that is very much also a core focus that you have to make sure that you have your risk management on par. And uh, I'm just curious, who also does your auditing? So we're not currently audited, uh, but we do do a. Oh, you're not audited. Yeah. So we we do a different process that's called proof of reserves, mm-hmm. and we do this with a. A firm called the network firm mm-hmm. that uh, checks that we, we do it every six months and they confirm that our assets are greater than our liabilities. Uh, so we may be audited in the future. Uh, so we, we don't have a requirement to be audited today. Mm-hmm. So that's, you know, obviously it's something that when we look at what are the different things we can focus on and we're, we, you know, spend, we'd like to spend more time, you know, uh, you know making sure that we have uh, strong risk management procedures and also, uh, you know, building better products for our clients today. Mm-hmm. But I think uh, in the future is something that we we will be looking to to do as well. Um, and, we, and we may have a requirement to do it in, under certain uh, different, um, you know, if, if we ever want to take the company public or, or different aspects of, of how we'll grow the company. 
company, that would be obviously a precedent to, to getting that done. Mm-hmm. So just to backtrack, your proof of reserves approach is, you mentioned, it's checked every six months. That's right. Mm-hmm. Okay. Just want to make sure. <laughs> yeah, of course. Yeah, so so we do. No, that, it, it's an. Yeah, I think like, if you go back to the start of this year, uh, we knew that we had to do a massive lift to rebuild trust in the lending industry, and so it's one thing to survive, uh, but like. You know, I, I kind of I'll be you know very blunt and 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 thinking about this right. I'll use like a, a motorcycle brand analogy, which is like I don't know completely random, but I was just thinking about this right. If everybody's been having a great time and and riding motorcycles, and then like mm-hmm. four, there's five of them, and then four of them blow up and run off the road, like the other one might just not want to ride a motorcycle again, right? So so I, I completely get that that you know we might be around and, and there might be a, a big opportunity ahead, but we have to really explain why we're not a motorcycle or actually actually a, uh, you know, a, a Hummer vehicle that is, you know, fully, you know, protected and has a lot more <laughs> checks and balances and has four wheels instead of two and can take you way further. And, you know, so it's like, you, you kind of have to break it down and say, what were the, con- what are the concerns today? Are those legitimate concerns? How do we get clients comfortable with this? And, you know, how do we make sure we continue to do the right thing? Right. Because our team's investing a lot of time in this. Uh, we have a lot of different clients that have trusted us or are, are continuing to trust us, but we obviously want to grow and, and bring more people into this ecosystem and more people, uh, hopefully, to as clients that we can have the the opportunity to work with. So at the beginning of the year, we we knew that uh, trust and transparency was the number one thing that we had to uh, focus on, and so. We set out to create a new standard, which was the open book reports. We said, okay, yeah, let's let's show people exactly how we're utilizing their assets. And so we, we do that monthly. And then uh, the proof reserves piece with um, the, net, the network firm was something that we we actually started you know, several years back and we were the first lender to do it. So we said, yeah, we'll continue that. Uh, we also started to do check-ins uh, with our management team. And so we do uh, you know open kind of mm-hmm. effectively like AMAs uh, with the team that uh, clients can submit questions to. And then the other piece that I can speak to structurally is we did change how the yield accounts work. And so we've, we recently did this with Bitcoin. Uh, the next one coming up with the USUC is going to be announced in September, but this is uh, changing it so that there's no longer binary outcomes. And so uh, if you think about the what was the market structure of a crypto lending company was everything was in one bucket. And so if you look at what's going on with the bankruptcy proceedings today, you have a situation where someone that just wanted to borrow against their Bitcoin or, or ETH or whatever other asset that they were using to collateralize on one of these other platforms is now stuck in the same bankruptcy proceedings resulting from maybe a lending loss to three arrows that was used to uh, effectively run the yield accounts. So I wanted to only borrow mm-hmm. and now I'm stuck with, with because of the actions of uh, that was caused at the company level because they're running a different product. So we thought that the business would be a lot better, uh, both internally and externally, if we group those different activities. And we we tried uh, to our best ability to ring fence them. And so that's exactly what we've done with our Bitcoin growth account now. And so we actually mm. created a separate legal and separate technical structure where if you're 
participating and you're effectively lending your Bitcoin into the growth account, you're only facing those borrowers uh, and you're not even facing Ledin. So in the remote uh, circumstance that Ledin goes bankrupt, you are not impacted because you're in a separate legal entity uh, that sits you know, adjacent to, to us. And so yeah, you know, just to make sure that I, I don't overstate or overpromise, you know, there, there could be a situation with one of those borrowers goes bankrupt, but you know, because the effectively the pool of assets lent to a diversified group of borrowers, it's not an all or nothing thing. So this this would operate, uh, you know, again in a, a more rationed approach where we have a whole recovery process that we have put in place so that it's not like an all or nothing thing uh, in the, in that pool. So again, I think just by a saying that, uh, B doing it, and then committing to always produce things like the open book report that shows how the assets are utilized. Clients can make their own decision, right? And I think that's that's what we have to make sure that we do. Is our job is to set up a structure that we think is the best way to create these types of products. And then make sure that we're providing the most transparent information that we can so that clients can make their own choice as to whether they want to participate in them. And so after that, you know, obviously we have to continue to manage things in the best way, but uh, I think that's the best we can do, right? So, you know, there is, there is risks with everything and our job is just to make sure that we communicate those risks and, and benefits and then make sure that clients have as much choice as possible so they can decide whether it's right for them. Oh, thanks for that. Um, yeah, I think trust and integrity, the trust and integrity part is crucial, especially now. Um, I mean, the crypto space is uh, sort of finding its way and going up and down certain bumps on the road and uh, everybody gets affected one way or the other. But with what you are doing, I think, yeah, you're definitely doing all of the right things. And in terms of, let's say if I was an investor and let's say if I invested, I don't know, I have like a million dollars with you guys. I mean, f for myself, I just want to make sure I can get that back <laughs> if you go under. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, we can, you know, technically talk about all these things, but yeah, once you want to put theory into practice. Yeah. Look, I think, I think. And vouch for it. I, I, I hate to even make a joke of it, but you know, everyone was focused on yield, yeah. yield on capital. The most important thing is return of capital. Yeah. Right. Exactly. So it's like, you, if you're not getting your principal back, what's the point of trying to get, to get a return? Exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. that, that That's where the greed part comes in. And so we're just just curious do you do you have direct competitors like is is there anyone i haven't actually on this podcast we haven't had anyone actually offering what, what you're offering in terms of your products or corp, your core products but in terms of lending exactly what you guys have do you consider your competitive landscape or do you not even consider that at all yeah look we we definitely monitor it i think what's encouraging is we're starting to see some uh, new competition come in and i think that's you know i think the which can be healthy yeah which can be healthy look i think i encourage innovation i also kind of half jokingly say that the best ideas are copied but the best <laughs> products are original right so good one <laughs> <laughs> like if like, it's like you know yeah come in and you know i think for us we have the benefit of uh, five years of experience which you know may not sound like a long time in the tradfi space but in this space is uh you know multiple equivalent to multiple decades and so you, we've learned we've learned a lot absolutely we've been through a lot of up and down cycles and uh we'll, we're just going to continue to get better what would you say like what would you consider your biggest challenges over this five-year period 
Yeah, I would say it's uh, focus in times when things are bullish. And so that's where, you know, uh, like we had a lot of uh, pressure uh, to to grow. So I'd say like the resistance to not get into the AUM at all costs uh, was was real. And so mm-hmm. um, I'm thankful that we didn't get caught up um, in, in, in that aspect of it. And I think that I'd say focus on the product side uh, is key too. So you've got, you're always trying to disseminate, right? Because I think people ask for everything, right? And so it's like, okay, you're asking for this. How many other people want it? How do we test it? And then I, I would say um, it, it's people on all sides. So I'm, I'm very fortunate and thankful uh, with the team we have today. I think we've got, you know, people that are very committed, focused. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's you know, a continual thing is how do we get things um, shipped faster? How do we get things uh, shipped responsibly? And uh, how do we just keep keep adding value uh, to it? So I think you know the, the people aspect of, of the business is uh, the most challenging, but the most rewarding. Absolutely. I have one question looming in my head, um, which I did actually clear up with you <laughs> before having before having this conversation. Given that you uh, were originally a Canadian company, I think you know where where my question is gearing uh, next. In terms of the Canadian trucker scenario, some years back, I know now that you are set up in the Caymans, and it's it's a different story. But obviously, it was a global phenomenon, and and I personally think a wake up call to many. If we can just speak about this hypothetically, what would happen if if the truckers would have accounts with Leaden? Uh, and you were still in the Canadian jurisdiction in terms of everything. Would you have to freeze their assets, given that you are you? I mean, you are centralized. I mean, you are a CFI. What would happen? Yeah, happy to speak to that. So I think the setup of the truckers piece was was fascinating for me as a Canadian. So I was very much working uh, in Canada at the time, mm. and I think the international reaction was far more severe than the domestic reaction really? and so maybe that was just you know the circles like obviously i would say you know the, the canadian bitcoin community w- was quite loud and uh, you know understandably uh because it came down to uh financial rights and freedoms yes uh, but I, I would say that you know talking to you know friends and family that weren't in it it was like oh no that's like you know 50 people in Ottawa, right? And so it was It was a little bit, I, I will say that... Inflated. Uh, in, internationally, I think it was a bit inflated because I think it was like, oh, you know, Canada is, you know, there's never any news out of Canada. This is crazy <laughs> for Canada. So I think <laughs> right. that that spin, <laughs> like it's like, you know, normally it's like, a, a, you know, anyways, far less exciting things coming out uh, of Canadian news. So I think that... that Which is not a bad the, thing, the actually, sensationalized of like It's not a bad thing. Yeah, exactly. So I, I, I think like if it was the US, it'd be like, oh yes, yeah, the U.S. There's always crazy stuff happening <laughs> yeah. in the U.S., but you know, it's like it, it just—I think it was so shocking yeah. that it was—it was happening here. I think it is a big deal, and I think it can happen anywhere. So I, I don't think it's anything to do with with Canada, uh, but you know, the no, fact that no, no. Uh, it did happen here, I think, and and the reaction was was concerning for for sure. You know, just to just to restate, we are uh, fully domiciled in the Cayman Islands today, so we're fully regulated there. We don't have any connection to Canada when it comes to. Uh, uh, how we're operating the products uh, today. So, um, not in But what the, if there's truckers on Cayman? Yeah, no, <laughs> or, exa- exactly. Or, right? or I don't so, know, fishermen or something, yeah, you know, yeah, that so, something happened. And yeah. So, so that's the point. I, I, I think I don't, I, I think it is interesting because it, it, it can theoretically happen anywhere. And it comes down to, uh, you know, that that is the piece of we're, we're in this odd matrix. And I think I, I, I see the same thing when I travel, right? It's like, 
you can buzz across the world and you can send Bitcoin across the world. Mm -hmm. But then when you land in the place, you have these rules that are sometimes archaic and not at all with the current times. And uh, but they're still important because mm -hmm. they can shut you down if, if you don't do uh, things in a certain way. Uh, and so I, I guess to again to first talk about Canada and we'll get a bit high level uh, later. But the the I would say that there. So what exactly happened was they did use uh, financial sanctions to attempt to stop transfers. Right. So right. effectively what they were trying to stop was from my understanding of it was really like international money coming in. Right. So they were starting to be from from what I understood, you know, different people around the world sending money to, to support this. And I think I think, frankly, the government was scared. They were getting a little bit overwhelmed with uh, that. It was fairly uh, contained, uh, but I think there was like, okay, how big could this get? Uh, so then what they did was they uh, started to freeze temporarily because I think they've now, now it's all since been unfrozen, but, but still a very big deal. And they're effectively how it works is the mm -hmm. uh, financial regulator for uh, anti-money laundering, but also different types of financial sanctions is, is FinTrack. This is equivalent to FinCEN. And they come up with a list of names and then if you're on that list uh you have to uh, freeze the account and then wait for their direction uh and so mm -hmm. it'd be it'd be akin to you know almost which is i think again crazy because i think the example was so so different from this but not dissimilar to uh probably a u.s company that again with all the tension with russia today you get a name that's on that that hit list and then you have to deal with their accounts right so i would say that these financial sanctions exist everywhere right they're in the eu they're in i'm I'm sure Russia has its own sanctions against yep. Americans, right? But but I think that I think the thing that made this situation so newsworthy was it didn't seem like a sanctionable event, right? It was people, you know, theoretically, uh, and again, I can't claim it was completely peaceful, but it, I think for the most part, it was it was peaceful, and um, you know that that was I think the thing that really uh, struck a chord with with people globally, like oh wow, okay, if I lose my right to protest and therefore I can't support the protest financially. Right. How bad can this get? Right. So, so I think that's the um, aspect that that is that is quite scary. And again, the thought of uh, a country so free as Canada changing into this, I think, was again the, the the newsworthy event. But yeah, I would say that any company operating in an area that is regulated by an entity like that that has to abide by that, or there's there's fines, right? And so I think they could choose to ignore them. They could weigh weigh the cost benefit of what is the financial penalty versus the you know not abiding by it and, and the reputational piece. But I would say ju just to again put into context the size of this impact, we didn't have any hits. So despite having a lot of Canadian Bitcoiner clients, uh, despite having large client base in Canada, none of the entities that the mm -hmm. or, or names that the FinTrack entity was asking us to to freeze were, were on our client list. So it was it was quite small, I think. But again, oh, everybody was. Yeah, everyone was right. So like TD Bank, yeah. So anyone anyone who operates in a in a in a um, so anyone in Canada, mm -hmm. right? So like it's literally a, like a broad list. So we we weren't we weren't emailed directly, but we were advised that everyone has to check like a you know a, a list of that. So mm. yeah, again, no zero effect today because we're in Cayman, but um, I, I think it's but yeah, it's 
Yeah. Like you said, I mean, yeah, of course, it's it can happen anywhere. And it, I mean, on an individual basis now, it is it is happening to certain, well, you know, I don't know how much you're following, but to certain politicians, because whether or not you agree with them or not, yeah, you've got the, the UK, Nigel yeah. Farage thing going on. And just just curious, right? Because it's uh, it goes back to, I guess, freedom of speech. But then again, yeah, look, exactly. And, and I think um, it's, it's a tricky, it's a tricky situation. It is. If you can't access the fiat system today, it's pretty decimating, right? And so that's where, you know, again, we're not there yet with with Bitcoin or other digital assets where, mm. yes, I think you can, you can move to El Salvador and you can operate in a Bitcoin-only economy there. Mm-hmm. But broadly speaking, other places in the world, you can own only Bitcoin as an asset, but then you still need on and off ramps today to interact uh, in, in different ways, right? So I think I am very interested um, in, in moving to an economy where, where you don't need that. And I think that's really important to, to maintain freedoms. Uh, but I think that is the, um, you know, uh, you know, reality that is perhaps a little bit scary today. And that, you know, there is there is kind of binary where if, theoretically, again, what's happening in the UK, you know, that there could be some scary outcomes if you don't, uh, if you don't comply. So yep, yep. Mm-hmm. Well, Adam, I think we're approaching, uh, we've definitely, I think I've exhausted you <laughs> over the <laughs> last okay. hour. Enjoyed the conversation. What's next for Ledin for your product ecosystem? I know you've alluded to a couple of things or what you, what you would like to do versus what's, what's the reality, but how do you, um, how do you see your, your pipeline, uh, or your roadmap and in, in the short term? Yeah, I'm so proud of our team and the amount of things that we've been able to get done this year. I mean, it's, uh, they, they, they the saying is like bear markets are for building. And it's it's very true at Ledin. We've gotten a lot of things done, and a lot of things are going to ship in the next couple months. So I massive I mentioned the massive restructuring of our uh, uh, savings now growth accounts. That was a really big undertaking yes. to think through how to do that and how to improve the structure of those to protect clients. Uh, so that's what been one big thing. Uh, the DCN products, the fact that it's all been automated now, that was a product that we did. Um, you know, fifty million of, of Notional on an OTC basis, just on a trial basis. Um, last year. So it's been exciting to automate that and watch clients uh, deal with it in a more seamless way. We are going to look to uh, support a, a select amount of, of other assets, but keeping to a very, very tight menu. Um, and so, uh, you know, I think when we think about broader stable coins, we want to make sure that there is more and more ease of access to Ledin's platform. Mm-hmm. And then the other piece is, you know, I think again, back to the awareness side is we want to get broader into different regions. And so I'm personally spending a lot of time in Asia. I'm actually um, get, getting ready for a, a trip shortly. And so I'll be spending time. Uh, I'll be at um, Token 2049 and Korean Blockchain Week and other events uh, in Asia in September and then uh, in the, the MENA region uh, in, in Dubai and actually uh, Saudi Arabia uh, later in October. So just really excited to tell more people about what we're doing. And uh, mm-hmm. I'm going to be spending a lot of time with our clients as well. We're, we're, we're setting up different events. So I love speaking to uh, different people uh, operating in the space and uh, understanding what's points of friction and what's working well for them. So well, perfect. It sounds like you have busy times ahead. Yeah. Is is there Adam? Is there anything to add that I, I may have not asked that you would wish uh, our audience um, to know and to take away? 
Yeah. So, so we created that open book report. Uh, that's exactly what we are at Ledin. You know, we, we are uh, completely transparent of what we're doing. So I would just say, if you have any questions for me, uh, for the broader Ledin team mm-hmm. about what we're doing, any ideas, you want to know more about how things are operating under the hood. Uh, I think it's just everything's better when you, you tell people what you're doing, why you're doing it, uh, how it works. And uh, so if anyone wants to learn more, uh, my, my Twitter handle is Adam Reads. Um, Ledin's is HODL uh, with Ledin. <laughs> And so happy to, um, uh, you know, connect there. Great. We'll, um, we'll actually, we'll include all that information in the show notes. Thanks for that. And well, thanks so much for having this conversation with me today. It was actually truly beneficial to dive into um, the world of lending, crypto lending. I know crypto has a, a bad connotation, but it's, I don't know what else to call it at this point. <laughs> but, you know, hopefully we managed to mitigate some of the perhaps negative stigma or just the reservation an individual might have towards crypto lenders. I mean, this is no offense to you, but I think it's really good that you're talking out transparently and openly and um, giving out all kinds of information and just... Um, I mean, it certainly helped me. So thank you so much. But, yeah, yeah. I appreciate you taking the time to speak with absolutely. me. Absolutely, um, keep up the good work and and best of luck. Thank you so much, Nina. Thanks, Adam. Thanks again to our guests and thank you everyone for listening. Thanks also to the Bariam Music team for providing their music. You can check them out on bariammusic.com. All of the supporting information is on our website, blockchainrecorded.com. You can listen to us on Google, Apple, and Amazon podcasts, as well as on YouTube, Spotify, Radio Public, and Stitcher. You can follow us on Twitter and YouTube, where we are super grateful for your support. Stay tuned for our next episode.